Good morning. Thank you, worship team. That was that was awesome. My good. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you, God, that we can, um, with uh, with joyful hearts, that we can give you all the praise and glory and honor this morning. God, that we can uh, make much of your name. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that um, that you um, condescended, you took on flesh, and that you um, lived a life that was fully human, and that you were tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. We thank you that you um, went to the cross, and you bore our sin, and that you I took on the wrath of God that we deserved, and I thank you that you rose again from the dead and that you sit at the right hand of the Father and you intercede for us even now. And I thank you that we have a great high priest that, uh, whose work is finished and who uh, sees us and hears us uh, in the midst of every trial. We love you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, be honored and glorified. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would empower me to to be your uh, vessel this morning, your vessel of grace and mercy. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in uh, Hebrews, as I was just read, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And I've titled the sermon, The Eternal Source of Eternal Salvation. First of all, um, kids, that's, it's great to have you in here. Um, you are with us, um, most of you, um, once a quarter. It's just fun to have you in here. Um, you know, teenagers, you're always in here. It's not so much fun to have you in here, but we'll take you anyways. No, it's good to have you guys here too. Yeah. So uh, here on this, uh, this fifth Sunday, we are teaching on the eternal source of eternal salvation. You know, I grew up, some of you know my background, I grew up um, in the context of a church where I would go to a priest. Um, I would go to a priest on a regular basis I don't remember if it was monthly or quarterly, but I remember that I had to make an appointment with this priest on a regular basis. I remember that I would, I would walk in, I would just be dropped off at the church, and I would walk in the door, so I'd stick my hand in the uh, holy water, make the sign of cross, I'd make the left turn, and I would go into a room, a scary room, that was about the size of a, a broom closet, about three by three. And I would walk into that room, and there was a kneeler, and I would kneel down on it, and there was about a you know, probably 14-inch by 8-inch um, screen with, um, with just black, and then I would hear a door on the other side of the screen open, and I would see a shadow, and I would hear a scary voice, and then I would immediately say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been X amount of time since my last confession. And so I would, I would bear my soul, my sins, to this, um, this man without a face with a scary voice. And I did this, I believe, I probably, need, I probably needed to know more of what I was doing and why I was doing it, but I did it to confess my sins in both um, number and kind, the, the, the type of sin and the number of sins. And I remember just like walking in there, like trying to think through like just ways I've disobeyed my parents and things that I looked at that I maybe shouldn't have looked at and words that I used that I probably shouldn't have used. And I would just confess it all. I would bear myself to the priest so I could be reconciled to God and I could be reconciled to the church. And then he would give me homework. He would basically bless me and say, um, go say five Hail Marys and three Our Fathers and basically your sins are um, absolved. 
And, uh, and that, was, that was just a routine that I went, to, uh, went through for years and years. What it taught me is that I needed a mediator in order to be right with God. I needed a mediator. I needed someone to stand between me and a wrathful, angry God. And I believed at that age that he was certainly, if nothing else, I believed that he was a wrathful, um, angry God. And I lived in constant fear of this wrathful God. And I lived in fear of the mediator on the other side of the screen as well. Um, I always had a sense that there were rules um, in God's economy without relationship. There were rules without relationship and that the priests had no idea what I was going through. And I remember that, like walking in there, that I had this priest that I was confessing everything to, and he really didn't even know me. He didn't know what I was struggling with. He didn't know my fears. He didn't know my temptations. He didn't know uh, the trials that I was going through. He didn't know my loneliness. And he wouldn't walk with me um, after that, uh, that it would be, I'd be back on my own back in front of a mediator um, three months from now. I want to ask you this morning, how do you see God? How do you see God, particularly after you have sinned? How do you see God in the midst of a trial? Like, how do you picture his face? How do you picture his countenance? What is his attitude towards you in your sin? Or in your trial? Do you see him smile or do you see him scowl? Do you see him rooting you on or do you see him turning his back? Do you see him helping you up or do you hear him saying, you made your bed, you need to sleep in it? Do you think that he hears you when you cry out in tears and pain? Or do you think he only hears you when you have your act together? That you can only come to him when you have your act together? And just kind of a tag-on question here is that when you are in the midst of a trial, uh, when you're in the midst of your own sin or, 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 or um, reaping someone else's sin, do you go to him or do you go to somebody else? Who's your priest? Is it one of the pastors? Is it your spouse? Last week, Stephen described the duties of a high priest of the Old Testament as he unpacked chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I would encourage you to listen to it. The high priest, uh, the ancient high priest, served as a religious head of his people and mediator between God and man. The high priest was the only one permitted into the inner part of the temple where God dwelt. And in that Holy of Holies, it's where, um, it's where the high priest would, uh, would make atonement for his people. If you want to read more about that, go to Exodus chapter 36 and Leviticus 16. Excuse me, Exodus 26. The priests were sinful themselves, and they would first have to atone for their own sin. Stephen also reminded us that the, the offering the perfect sacrifice By offering the perfect sacrifice and making propitiation for our sin, the true and greater high priest Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, or passed through the heavens, as the text said, to the throne of grace. In doing so, he opened the way for all of God's people to confidently come before the throne of grace. That because Jesus went as a forerunner, tore the veil, went through the heavenlies, now sits at the right hand of the Father, that we can confidently approach that throne of grace. 
Stephen gave a great picture from the book of Esther that a subject cannot come before the king unless the king beckons or summons the subject. If the subject goes to the king uninvited, the subject will be killed. So in Esther, he gave us this great picture of the, of the king holding the scepter out, which, which uh, Esther knew that she could approach when the scepter is out. And this beautiful picture that the Lord Jesus always has the scepter out for his, for his people, that, that he has an open-door policy, that we can always approach or confidently approach the throne of grace. Today in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, we're going to take a more in-depth look at the qualifications for the Old Testament high priest including the qualifications for the great high priest, Jesus. And then in verses 5 through 10, we'll be encouraged to see how Jesus perfectly fulfilled his role as a great high priest and what the implications are for us as believers. Verse 1, qualifications for the human high priest. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This, this happened on the annual day of atonement, where, where he would enter the Holy of Holies. Leviticus 16, and I don't have any slides up here today. I apologize for that. Um, we're going to be in Hebrews most of the time. Um, if you want to look ahead, we might be in uh, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 as well. Um, but right now, Leviticus 16, 30 through 34. Um, regarding the annual day of atonement, God said this in Leviticus 16, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest, he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, for the tent of meeting, for the altar, for the priests, and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all sins. Then in Exodus 28, God established a priesthood to mediate between himself and his people, that God is the one that appointed priests to mediate for his people. And it had to be someone from the people that were being represented. In this case, it was the 12 tribes of Israel. That was God's people. So it had to be somebody from the 12 tribes to represent the 12 tribes. So he chose Aaron, Moses' son, and he chose Aaron's sons from among the people of Israel to act on behalf of the people of Israel, to mediate between God and man. He would represent them. And the way that he would represent um, uh, humanity before God is by making sacrifices to cleanse themselves from sin so that they can have a relationship with God. See, God needed to be satisfied. And the people's sins needed to be taken away. So let me just walk you through this. In ancient Israel, once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to offer gifts and sacrifices to God for the sins of the people. And what he would do, he would select two unblemished goats. Two goats that had no blemishes on them. And one goat was killed as an offering for the people. This was called substitutionary atonement. What that means was that, that the goat would be killed so that the people would not be killed. You see, we do have a, a God that is a, a wrathful God. We have a God who is just. We have a God who cannot be approached because of our sin. So the high priest would take the first goat and he would, um, he would kill the goat. And then he would drip the blood on the mercy seat where God resided to, to atone uh, for the sins of the people. This was called substitutionary atonement. 
It satisfied God and it appeased his wrath. It held back his wrath. Then he would lay his hands on the head of the second goat. And this, was, this symbolized transferring all the sins of the people onto the sins of the goat. And then he would let the goat go into the wilderness and die. That's where we get the term scapegoat. This represented substitutionary expiation, taking our sins away. You see, the first one was substitutionary atonement, um, that we would, uh, the, the goat would take our place, the goat would take God's wrath, and the other was substitutionary, um, how do you say it, um, expiation, to show that sin was taken away. The priest would enter the Holy of Holies, where God resided once a year to atone for the sins of the people. But here's the deal. Like the priest on the other side of the screen, the priest was sinful. The, the priest was imperfect, like the people that, just like the people he was representing. And so the priest needed to be ritually cleansed, cleansed and dressed properly before he went into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. So God said this to Moses in Exodus chapter 28. They shall make holy garments, the priests or the, or the people, shall make holy garments for Aaron and your brother, Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. These holy garments would serve to cover the priest's sinfulness and make him fit to stand in God's presence. So on the outside of these garments, I'm not going to go through, you can read it, it's pretty elaborate, and the garments match the tabernacle. Um, and they're, they're, pretty, they're very precise. But on the, on the outside of this garment was a breast piece. And on this breast piece was inlaid 12 stones, 12 precious stones that represented the 12 tri tri tribes of Israel. And it was right over the priest's heart. It was the people of 12, uh, it was these people of these 12 tribes that the priest would bring before the Lord. And then finally, a golden bell was sewn on the bottom of the hymn. So that uh, hymn, not H-Y-M-N, but H-E-M, on the bottom of the hymn, so that when he went in there, he would, the people would know that he's doing his work because they would hear the clanging as he moved around, killing the goats and sprinkling the blood. And when that clanging would stop, there's trouble. Because the priest was killed. And as Stephen said last week, they would have a rope around the priest's leg in case, in case the clinging stopped so they can drag him back out. But what a joyful noise it was to hear the clinging and dinging of the bell. And I, and I had just kind of a sick feeling in my stomach um, yesterday as I was looking at this because when I was um, in, the, in the church that I described earlier, I was an altar boy. And the, and the priest would go into this tabernacle and uh, pull out the elements that they believed that they would actually take bread and wine that it, that, it, that it literally and physically became the bread and blood of Jesus. And while they were taking that out as an altar boy, I would jingle the bells. And I never really thought about that, and I really need to Google that, but I'm wondering if that, if that relates. And it made me sick to think um, that I was doing something um, that really had nothing to do um, with the great high priest. I'm going to just explain here in a few minutes. So when that bell stopped jingling, it had to be a horrifying silence. 
The priest not only had the breastplate um, that, that had the, uh, the, the 12 tribes of Israel on his heart, not only had the bells, but had a, had a turban on his head, a plate on his head that said, holy to the Lord. Then in Hebrews 5, 2 through 3, we're told that the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, verses 2 through 4. A priest was chosen not because he was righteous. He was chosen because he was part of God's plan. The priests were weak sinners, just like the people they represented, and therefore they could sympathize and deal gently with those who were ignorant and wayward like themselves. So once a year, on the Day of Atonement, they would go into the Holy of Holies, represented um, God's people, who, who were represented by having their names on the breastplate over his heart. But there was an obvious problem. What do you think the problem was? What's the problem? There was a problem with the annual Day of Atonement. It wasn't bad, it was good, but it wasn't best. As soon as the sacrifices were offered and the joy of forgiveness was felt, the clock began to tick on the rest of the believer's sinful life. The forgiveness was temporary. The day was impotent to save fully and finally. They would sin again, and in their sin, God's wrath and their guilt would come back. It would accrue. Do you see the awful predicament here? As soon as the high priest walks home from the tabernacle, they themselves and the people they represent were undone by their sin. The Day of Atonement was not, uh, was not enacted to provide eternal redemption. It was never meant for that. It was good, but it was a shadow. It was a pointer to a better priest. The fact that the Day of Atonement had to be repeated yearly signals that it wasn't a final solution for sin. Hebrews 10.1 tells us so much. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The priest and his sacrificial system, that, the priest and the system that God set up was good and necessary to avert his wrath but it, so that he could be with his people. But those sacrifices would persist year after year after year in the same way that I have to go into that confessional month after month after month. But this, this sacrificial system was intentionally short-armed because, so that the priests and their sacrifices would point to a better priest who would make a better sacrifice so that their work would be a shadow, a good shadow of a better reality. And we start to see this in verses 5 through 10. First verses 5 through 6. So also Christ, the high priest, did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The author here draws from two psalms. Psalm chapters 2 verse 7 and Psalm 110 verse 4. 
And he does this to prove his point that Jesus did not exalt himself as king, and he did not appoint himself as high priest. He was appointed by the Father. And these two psalms, as confusing as they might seem, are drawn together by their use of the second person personal pronoun, you. You are my son. You are a priest forever. Making both uh, messianic pronouncements concerning Jesus Christ. The author uses these psalms to emphasize the idea of exaltation and appointment. Psalm 2-7 has the idea of being appointed king. Psalm 110-4 has the idea of being appointed priest. And I, and I like the way that the NIV and New Living Translation um, uh, uh, writes uh, verse 5. He says, you are my son, today I have become your father. That's what today, today you have become, uh, I have begotten you. Today I have become your father. What the author has in mind here is the enthronement of Jesus. The day when the Most High gave public notice that he had exalted the crucified Jesus as both Lord and Christ. We see that in Acts 2, verse 36. We're not going to talk a lot about Melchizedek today. I know you're just jonesing to know more about this guy named Mel. And we're going to get to that. Uh, we're going to get to that in a few weeks. Um, if you want to learn ahead of time, Genesis 14 is the first time he's brought up. And then in, in Hebrews chapter 7 and 8, we're going to do a deep dive and learn more about this awesome guy named Mel. What the author wants us to know about Mel today is that Jesus is both royal king and eternal priest. That's what we need to know today. He's royal king and he's eternal priest. So in order to be appointed the great high priest, Jesus went to high priest training school for 33 years. He walked in your shoes. He was tempted or tested in every way, yet without sin. He went to the depths of pain and suffering and experienced all the ups and downs of life that you and I experience. Therefore, we have a great high priest who sits to the right hand of God, who isn't just a dispassionate deity. He isn't just a God behind a screen. He isn't just a God who says you're forgiven, now go live your life any way you want to live it. We have a great high priest who sits at the right hand of God. One who gently sympathizes with you in all of your weaknesses. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. The eternal God took on flesh. We see it all over God's word. We see it in John 1. We see it in Philippians 2. He took on flesh. He became fully human. He was not exempt from the suffering and trouble that this world has to offer. In the days of his flesh, when he walked this earth fully human, he suffered. He was tempted in every way. And he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And we're not sure exactly what the author has in mind here when Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. The author's probably aware of various incidents in the life of Jesus where Jesus cried out to the Father. But we do know from Isaiah 55 that Jesus was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. Our knowledge of Jesus' life is restricted by what is written in the Gospels. 
we only know so much about Jesus' life. So the account of Jesus at Gethsemane seems to offer the most telling illustration of him offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. I want you to listen to Mark 32-36. As Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem, he's now arrived on the hill, and the time has arrived for him to lay down his life for his people. So he took the apostles, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And it says that he began to, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. What hour? The hour of his crucifixion. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And we're told in we're told at the end of verse 7 in Hebrews, we're told that he was heard, that his prayers were heard because of his reverence. And that's confusing to me. Because what I know it doesn't mean is that I have to be walking in perfect piety, in reverence, and perfect submission for God to hear me. And what I don't think it means is that the Father heard his plea for help because he was reverent, though he was reverent. I think it carries the meaning that Jesus had a confidence that God would hear his prayers and supplications and loud cries and tears. It's, it's, a, it's a submitting to the will of the Father, knowing that he's good, knowing that he's loving, knowing that he will work his good will and purpose out in our life. Knowing that there is joy in submission. And knowing that he was heard when he cried out with loud tears and cries gave Jesus the strength to continually and humbly submit himself to God's will. All I wanted from that priest on the other side of the screen was to walk out the door at the same time as me. and say, come on, I'm coming with you. We're going to do this together. To not only just hear me, but to continually to hear me. To want to know my heart. To let me know that he experienced the same things that I'm experiencing. The point here was not so much that the prayer of Jesus was heard, as that he needed it to be heard. He needed heavenly aid to drink the cup. In the verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In verse 9, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. How do we learn to be obedient? Through consequences. Right? Like, I don't go as fast in certain areas where I've already received a parking ticket. It shouldn't be that way, but it's just a fact of life. And oftentimes we obey out of fear of consequences. And I want to just say a word to the kids right now, like off script. Like God gave you, by God's grace, a mommy and a daddy. 
And it says in, um, in the Old Testament law that you're to obey your mother and father. When they ask you to do something, you're to do it. And it says in the New Testament, Paul says in Galatians, is that the law, the rules, are given to us as a tutor. Because there's just times it's hard to obey mommy and daddy, isn't it? Like right now. As, as, you're, as the parents are telling you, you need to listen to Pastor Dan. But, it's, but you can't do it. You're not going to be able to perfectly obey your parents, and you're not going to be able to perfectly obey God. Until you surrender and trust in God and believe that, that all the authorities that he's given you are for your good. Parents, there's no charge on that one. So we learned obedience through consequences that follow disobedience, and it's good to give consequences for disobedience. It's easy to obey when there's no potential for pain. But Jesus obeyed the will of God that included pain and suffering. That God's will for Jesus was to die, was to be scorned, to be left alone. And though he was a son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. His learning obedience through what he suffered provides a clue to the meaning of the difficult expression in verse 9 that he was made perfect. Jesus was made perfect in the sense that he became perfectly qualified to be the eternal source of salvation, the source of eternal salvation to all who believe. God was training Jesus for perfection, to be the perfect and eternal great high priest and the perfect sacrifice. And unlike the sinful high priests who went before him, Jesus did not offer sacrifices for his own sin. But he offered himself as the final and ultimate sacrifice who would save the people from their sin once and for all. He was a sacrificer, and he was a sacrifice. He was a priest, and he was a spotless lamb. Remember how John the baptizer introduced Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was by enduring the common weaknesses and temptations of the human lot, not by yielding to them, that he learned obedience and proved himself perfect. And being the perfect high priest, he will not only sympathize with our weaknesses, but he will bring deliverance from them and victory over them. He's not a source of eternal... He, he is not a source of eternal salvation. He is the source of eternal salvation. As verse 9 says, to all who obey him. Does that sit right with you? He is a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I thought we were saved by grace through faith. We are. Our obedience does not save us. Our obedience does not even make God love us anymore. What the text is talking about here, in light of 
many other texts that say that we are saved by grace and that is not of our own doing. In saying that he is a source of salvation, the source of salvation for all who obey, I believe it's, it's in obedience to the call to believe. That we're called to believe. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death, but, but the gift of self, but the, the wages of sin is death, but they're, help me. But the gift of God is eternal life. Is that right? Something like that? Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, thank you. It's all over Scripture. It's a call to obey the call, to come to the cross with all of our sin and weakness and trust in His finished work for the forgiveness of our sins. To come with all of our, in all of our imperfection, to come in our disobedience. It's a God, I can't do it. I know I'm a sinner. I live in perpetual disobedience. And I need you to save me from the power and the penalty of my sin. You see, in all of our imperfections, we can trust in His perfection. You see, our growing obedience and submission to the Father after salvation is the fruit of salvation. The root of salvation is belief. It's faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the root is growing obedience. And then he finishes up with his description of Jesus that is designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Come in full circle. We're reminded that we have an eternal high priest whose sacrifice on your behalf is acceptable to God. And as that sacrifice is acceptable to God, you, by faith, have been fully accepted by God. You're fully accepted. You're always heard. You're forever loved. And you're forever forgiven. Your name is written on the heart of the great high priest. He sympathizes with your weaknesses and he deals gently with you as he knows what you're going through. We have a great high priest who knows what it means to be poor. We have a great high priest who knows what it means to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, misunderstood. Any other Enneagram 8s in here? Shouldn't have said Enneagram in a church, should I? Falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and kills. He knows what it means to be lonely and abandoned. He can sympathize with you, and he deals gently with you in whatever you're going through. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made human, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, that fancy word, simply means that he bore the wrath of God that every human being deserves. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He, not just, he didn't just help us up to, um, as a propitiation for our sin, but he continues to help us. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for you right now. He's rooting you on when you fall. He's got a smile on his face. Even in your sin, he doesn't turn his back. He picks you up off the ground and says, let's keep going together. He'll never say to you, you made your bed, you need to sleep in it. He not only took care of our sin, he continues to care for us in every situation. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that he always lives to make intercession for us. He hears you when you cry out in tears and pain. He doesn't just hear you when you have your act together. So what's the encouragement? I'm not sure. I think the encouragement is just to be reminded that you have a great high priest who can sympathize with you in all your weaknesses. And he's gentle. And because he's been accepted, appointed by the Father as a great high priest, you are forever accepted. But for some of you that have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus, heed the call to obey. Not just obey your parents, not just obey the law, not just obey what God's word says, but, but obey the call to come to him. Come to him with all of your sin. And trust in him and his finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And kids, you're not a Christian just because your mom and dad are a Christian. You become a Christian when you understand that you are sinful just like mommy and daddy. And that you need a Savior just like mommy and daddy needed a Savior to forgive you of your sin. So come to him, all who are heavy and weary laden, who are weary and heavy laden, and he'll give you rest. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, this passage that um, has so many twists and turns. But God, I thank you for what seems to be the main message is that we have a great high priest a good and perfect high priest who sacrificed himself to free us from the guilt of our sin, to free us from ever having to drink the cup of wrath that we deserve, to be with us in every trial and temptation, to root us on to intercede on our behalf. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you who knew no sin became our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And I thank you now that we are clothed in righteous robes, that in our righteousness we can confidently approach the throne of grace in any and every weakness 
and find grace and mercy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?